you are listening to the next best picture podcast and this is our review of scream this isn't funny amber when you like to play a game tara so far. Do you have a gun? I'm Sydney Prescott. Of course I have a gun. Something about this one just feels different. Samantha? I'm... I know who you are. I've been through this. A lot. This is your life now, which means that whoever this is is gonna keep coming for you. You ready? This? Never. There's certain rules to surviving. The attacks were all on people related to the original killers. Whatever his link is to our past, it's pulled us all back here. And I won't sleep until he's in the ground. Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Scream, or is it Scream 5? Scream 22, and the story is as follows. 25 years after a streak of brutal murder shocked the quiet town of Woodsboro, California, a new killer dones the ghost face mask and begins targeting a group of teenagers to resurrect secrets from the town's deadly past. The film is starring Melissa Barrera, Mason Gooding, Jenna Ortega, Jack Quaid, Marley Shelton, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and Nev Campbell. It is directed by Matt Bettinelli Open, Tyler Gillett, and it is written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Daniel Howitt. Hello, hello. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Danilo Castro. Hello, everybody. Dan Baer. I still prefer the Babadook. <laughs> and joining us as a guest here, welcome back to the show, Scream Fanatic. He hosts the podcast Scream with Ryan C. Showers. It is Ryan C. Showers. I'm Ryan C. Showers. Of course I'm coming on the Scream podcast. (laughs) (laughs) See, that joke would have killed on my show. (laughs) I think it'll play well here. I think it'll play well here. Cool, cool. So I want to be upfront about this right away. If you have not seen the newest Scream film, go see it. Come back. Listen to us because we are going to talk about spoilers all throughout this review. So if you don't want to be spoiled, turn off the podcast right now. But for those that are going to stick with us, I have one question and one question only. What's your favorite scary movie? I, I, I believe I just said. <laughs> <laughs> full disclosure, full honesty. Uh, we did a podcast review of the original Scream uh, here on the show. And I confessed on that podcast that the original Scream by Wes Craven 
is my second favorite horror movie of all time. So I hold that original film in such high regard. Um, I, I know, though, that there were other people on this podcast who hold it even higher regard. So, <laughs> uh, But I have such a deep love for this franchise. I really have liked every single film in this franchise. Two, three, four, and now... For the purposes of just avoiding confusion and callbacks to the original film, I'm going to call Scream 2022 Scream 5 throughout the rest of this podcast. So this way we're not saying Scream this, Scream that, etc., etc. But I have really enjoyed this franchise. I love the meta commentary. I love that every couple of years there seems to be new things to talk about with regards to how the horror genre is continually evolving. And the Scream franchise has always kind of been a constant to keep up with that ever since the inception of the franchise itself. There is definitely a lot of talk, though, because unfortunately Wes Craven is no longer with us anymore. This is the first film to not be directed by him. If this franchise was dead, had they milked the cow and is there anything to really come back to at this point? Bringing in new cast characters, legacy characters, and so on and so forth, what is the end result for Scream 5? I want to start us off with our guest here, Ryan C. Showers. The floor is yours. What did you think after all of the anticipation, all the hype, creating a podcast around it? What did you think of Scream 5? Wow. So um, in, in typical Ryan fashion, I start out with saying, wow, OK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's weird for me to be on the show in a way because I'm I, talking about Scream, especially talking about it on a, in a podcast sense or in a very detail oriented sense is like a sixth is like a sixth sense to me by now because I do this on my show. You know, my friends and I, we've been talking about the, the upcoming movie. We've been talking about the previous movies for so long, especially over COVID. I feel like this was something that I helped me get through COVID in a way is looking forward to this new movie. And, uh, I, I really did love it. Uh, there was like one big issue I had with it, which was I don't think um, Sydney was utilized in the finale as well as she could have been. But I think, you know, in terms of just a general movie and not a screen movie, I think um, Radio Silence was really able to figure out the rules of a requel, follow them. And I think that's why everyone has had this sensational reaction to it like it's a really successful movie audience wise with critics a lot of people have called it the best since the original i don't see it that way i still think the original trilogy is the ultimate i do think this is maybe a bit better than scream 4 but um i i love the new characters i thought um you know melissa and jenna and david and courtney as the legacy characters were used to perfection i really i, I loved it i am really excited about it so great awesome Let's hear next from Daniel Howitt. Um, so first, I, I love the first Scream film. Uh, it's, you know, it's never not going to annoy me that we have to specify the movies. So, yes, I, I like this rule of calling it Scream 5. Um, but, yeah, I love I love the first film. It, it was so fresh and innovative and influential. And to be honest, I've only seen the sequels maybe once each. So I, I don't necessarily have a deep love for the franchise so much as I have a, a love for the first film. Um, and this new film... Of course, it's not nearly as fresh. I mean, it repeats a lot of the same beats and moments. Um, but the beauty of it is it, it gets away with it by by calling itself out so often. The self-referential nature of the movie uh, could could totally get old. I wouldn't I wouldn't fault somebody for thinking that. But I think it works here so much more often than it misses. 
Um, and a lot of that is thanks to a really great cast uh, who does who does a phenomenal job. I think Melissa Barrera is, uh, I, you know, she's two for two in my book. I know she's been in other things, but between this and In the Heights, uh, she's killing it. I think she's phenomenal. She's an excellent person to, to sort of be this new kind of lead. Um, Jenna Ortega's wonderful. Jack Quaid is, is pretty decent. And I think they utilize the returning trio really nicely. Um I have I know I know we're in spoilers territory. Uh, we can get it more into that later into kind of how it all wrapped up. Um, but I, I think this scream knows that it's in this letterboxed era. I think it embraces the fact that slasher films aren't um, aren't necessarily regarded very highly anymore, at least in comparison to elevated horror, as they said quite often throughout the <laughs> film. Um, and Matt, I think you hit the nail on the head. The, the the horror genre is is evolving, and so there's so much more commentary that they can dive into now. Um, so that's why that's why it's able to still feel fresh, even even with uh, the, the similar beats, you know, similar uh, plot development, things like that. So I think this is pretty well written. It's a solid entry in the franchise. It doesn't have a lot of new in it, uh, but it's a really nice update. Uh, that I think can appeal to this new generation. All righty. Uh, let's hear now from Danilo Castro. Um, I'm going to echo what Daniel says about being probably the biggest fan of the original Scream. I, I do think it is a masterpiece. I think it's a, it's a genre definer. Um, my fandom of the sequels varies. Uh, I probably like them in sort of decreasing order. I like two and then three and then four. But I do think that as far as a sequel goes in this day and age, uh, as far as the sort of soft reboot thing goes, I think this is probably one of the best examples we've had to date. I think the fact that it has this meta quality sort of hardwired into its storytelling allows, uh, like Ryan said, a lot of the elements to be sort of called out and sort of identified within the world. And I think those elements really shine. I think that's where some of the most memorable stuff in the movie comes from. I like the movie overall. I think there are some sort of mechanical things or or some sort of execution things that I sort of take issue with or think could have been done better. But overall, I think the cast do a decent job. And I think the handling of the legacy characters is, I think, done respectfully. And I think anybody who's a fan of the franchise will mostly enjoy those elements. So I'll save some of my, you know, nittier picks as we sort of go on in the episode. But overall, I'd say, you know, I I definitely enjoyed it. Okay, moving along here, Josh Parham. So when it comes to my own relationship with this franchise in general, I would actually say that I've had affection for these movies, but I've never really been actually someone who has been in love with them. And it's not to say that they're not good. Like, I think they're very fun movies, all of them. But just in terms of my own personal relationship, they were never like really big in my household growing up. I came to horror movies actually rather late, surprisingly. So I never really had like the nostalgic connection to the series. And I think it's very well written and executed, but overall it's just like, I don't hold it in quite as high esteem as other people do. So I walk into every one of these movies, like kind of with no real expectation, just hoping for a good time. And I think that this one is, another one in those lines of those movies. And I really thought that it was very entertaining. I agree that this new cast is really, really good. And I, for the most part, liked what I did with the legacy characters coming back. I think they feel very obviously well established in these roles and they fit neatly in. Um, I do think that this franchise though, if I have to bring something up with it is it tends to get into this habit of 
thinking that stating a problem with the storytelling is just enough. And if you just say this is a kind of deficiency or a cliche that we're leaning on, then the indulgence of it doesn't matter. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that all the time. I think sometimes the meta commentary can get a little thin at points and maybe they rely on it maybe a bit as a crutch in terms of their storytelling. But overall, it still, I think, indulges on a lot of what this franchise does best. It's still pretty clever in a lot of ways. And at the end of the day, it's still a very entertaining movie that I would recommend. All right, Dan Baer, we're up to you. I'm just going to like, completely piggyback off of what Josh just said, because I think that that is a lot of my issues with the film, which I think is really good. And I had a lot of fun with it as a horror film, as a scream movie, uh, a, a little bit less. So over the past week, sort of in preparation for this, instead of watching the original movies again because I've seen them all plenty of times I didn't need to. I actually went back and reread some of the reviews for of the original Scream from back when it was released in 1996. And it was interesting because I did not agree with a lot of the more negative critiques at the time. One of the problems that I noticed that was sort of consistent across a lot of the more negative reviews is that people found the movie kind of smug, that the commentary was making about horror movies in general and slasher films specifically comes across as kind of asshole-ish because it's so sure that the thing that it's commenting on is bad, but it itself is good. And I don't find that that's true of the original. I find that much more like wink, wink, nudge, nudge in the commentary it's making. Like, look, we all get that slashers aren't particularly, traditionally speaking, good. So let's just all laugh at it together. We'll have fun and we'll do all the tropes that these are for, but we'll do it better than what we're used to. And I really enjoy that about the first movie and the sequels, but especially the second one. But with this one, I think it's that problem that Josh just talked about, how it often mistakes stating a problem as making commentary or critiquing it. And that isn't always true. It, 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 it's not enough for me, um, mostly because like this exact conversation about horror movies and requels or reboot quills or whatever you want to call it, this happens on social media literally every damn day. <laughs> and it didn't feel like for a lot of that commentary that this was adding anything interesting or even just a little extra from that. And while I had fun with it and I think the, the kills are all brutal and so much fun to watch. And some of the um, more suspense scenes are a lot of fun, especially with a crowd. I think it's big sort of thesis statement about the state of modern horror and cinema in general does feel a little bit smug. And I agree with a lot of what it's saying, <laughs> but I still while watching it. I, I was weirdly reminded of don't look up. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I get that. So for me, 
I went in with pretty low expectations, if I'm being honest with you, mostly because new cast, new creative team, even though I like Radio Silence, I was a big fan of Ready or Not, and I enjoy watching that movie uh, still to this day, and I've liked a couple of their other films that they've worked on as well. So heading into this, though, it being a January release, I just didn't have like the highest of expectations. I figured if the franchise was going to stumble and fall at any point, it probably would be here, even though, especially when it comes to like this new cast, I'm very intrigued by a lot of them in their careers. Uh, Melissa Barrera, great in the Heights, Jenna Ortega, amazing in this uh, upcoming film uh, that people haven't really seen yet called The Fallout. Look out for that later this year. She's incredible in that. Jack Quaid in The Boys, uh, Dylan Minnette in 13 Reasons Why. Like, you just have so much uh, talent here. So I was willing to, like, obviously go into this with an open mind and obviously being a fan of the previous movies, growing up with them, really loving the meta commentary, the humor, of course, the kills, everything. I mean, I dressed up as Ghostface for Halloween when I was a kid. (laughs) Like, I love this franchise. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that I enjoyed this movie, but what really shocked me was how much it surpassed my expectations. Um, I thought it was such a good time. I thought the kills were, as Dan said, extremely brutal, maybe more brutal than I feel like they've been in previous films. Um, I laughed quite a bit at the humor in this movie, and also, too, I appreciated that There is a self-awareness amongst the new cast members and the old cast members as to how these films work that I actually felt like the characters were not dumb. Like, I really got the sense that the characters were very smart, and that presented some really unique situations where they're kind of, like, outguessing one another as to who the killer is and, you know, trying to figure out, uh, ultimately, how to survive through this story. And then in terms of, like, the legacy characters, I actually thought they were used quite well. I will freely admit, Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox are utilized less than David Arquette, but considering that, and once again, spoilers, final warning, considering that this movie is the final film for uh, Dewey, played by David Arquette, it made sense in retrospect that he would get the most screen time of the three of them, and they can still one day go in... (laughs) God help us, another sequel and bring Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox back if they want to. So didn't hate that uh, in the end. Uh, But man, I I just had so much fun with this uh, to the point that I also feel and I know this phrase has been getting tossed around a lot, but I really do feel that Wes Craven would have been proud of this movie if he were still alive and he had not directed it and he watched it simply as a fan. I think that Radio Silence does a really good job of mimicking his style um, and not overplaying their hand. Like they're not trying to reinvent the franchise. And they call that out in this movie too, about how this fifth film, this requel is having to take old elements, mix it in with something new to make it appear that it's fresh, but have just enough nostalgia to have it call back to the original and also make you feel comfortable knowing that this is the franchise that you know and love all along. So if there is going to be a transition into a wholly different type of Scream, like a different version of what Scream is, this is probably the transitional film to get us away from 
what Scream was with Wes Craven. And if there are more films, I think that's where now we're going to see the franchise change. Although, <laughs> as Jack Quaid says at one point in this movie, well, the whole the whole franchise just starts to go down after number five. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you know, I, I knew your um, trepidation beforehand, and I I kind of knew that, like, you know, going in with your low expectations, you would come out being very satisfied because um, Radio Silence, you know, the directors and the producer, they came on my show. They are huge fans of Wes Craven. I don't know if they mi- tried to mimic his style as more so just kind of honor it and take it and make their own, because I actually... I would. I don't think that they try to be Wes Craven. I think they try to just make a scream film. And this film, even though it is, it, they really do capture the tone of the first three well. Uh, you know, the fourth one, I love Scream Four, but the the tone of Scream Four really holds me back, and that's pretty much why I've ranked five just above four. But they really capture the tone well, which I think is really important to the success of this movie and making it feel like the old Scream movies back in the 90s. It's also like visually like how it looks too. Like I know that this was shot digitally, but it looks like it was shot on film like the original trilogy was. I mean, Scream 4 has a very different aesthetic than any other film in this franchise. Yeah. But I appreciated that they weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. Right. They were, they, you know, they've said this time and time again. And actually that's that's why they were like the perfect people to come on my show. Because like people always say, oh, you should have this person or that person. But like having them come on as fans of you know they were at the age that the, that the characters were um when the first movie came out so they really loved these movies they know them inside and out and i think that enabled them to really and they also had the time like the sequels were were all rushed to an extent with the writing or the filming um they had the time to do to make the best movie possible and i think those two ingredients really allows this movie to just you know take off um and really become the successful requel uh that it is well let's talk about the story first let's uh dive into that here so you know the story ultimately revolves around not sydney not gail not dewey but under this new character uh samantha or sam as she likes to be called and of course of course last name is carpenter which I love always the reference to, uh, you know, horror movie characters and directors uh, through other characters' names in this franchise. She's got a sister, played by Jenna Ortega, who the trailers would lead you to believe is the first kill of the movie, and that is the first scene of the film, very much trying to mimic the Drew Barrymore opening of the first movie in a lot of ways. And her attack, she actually survives it and is drawing Sam, who's been estranged from her family. Uh, She's got this new boyfriend, Richie. She comes back to Woodsboro, and the killer is luring not just Sam back, but also, in turn, the legacy characters as well, uh, because, of course, the Ghostface killer this time around has connections to... (laughs) everyone's past, somehow, because they introduced this storyline about how... Sam is the daughter of the film of uh, the first film's original killer, Billy Loomis, who is recreated here using CGI and has scenes where he interacts with her and stuff. So I don't want to go too much deeper into all of this. That is the story, ultimately, of what the film is working with here in terms of its plot, its structure and so on and so forth. So what did we think of this framing device, especially in regards to uh, Billy Loomis being connected to the new character of Sam. Well, if there was one thing in this movie that I really just flat out thought was bad, it was the uh, the visual effects on the visions of Billy Loomis. I agree. 
<laughs> they got away with it, I think, like the first couple of times, but then there were some scenes, like the scene where he appears in the back of the car, for example, where it's like oh, brightly lit yeah. during the day. Yeah. And it's like, oh no, they're not hiding how bad the visual effects are. It was, it was much too no, exposed. Yeah. yeah, like the first time it looked okay. And after that, I was like, oh, Skeet Ulrich, what happened to you? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Narratively, it's, <laughs> Narratively, it's already kind of a big swing because we haven't yeah. really had something like that before. So the fact that the effects are really not up to par, it makes it stick out like even more. Can I just like put this in context for everybody? Like, so, you know, in the first movie, the first trilogy was about like Sydney's relationship with her mother who is dead. And like, um, you know, that's kind of like her past haunting her. And they reframe it here where Billy kind of takes the, the role of Maureen Prescott as this like larger than life person who has caused this trauma for um, the main character. And um, I have to say, I when I learned this news um, some time ago and I was kind of like, ew, at, at first I was like, that just seems like a straight to VHS thing that bad horror movies would have done in the 80s, like who have the daughter of whatever. But I think here it works really well because they're not only borrowing the Maureen Prescott device, but they're also like kind of trying to comment on this generational trauma like they do in Halloween 2018. Um, and I, I think that it's a very interesting thing and it's, it's a very dark and complex thing that I think is going to unfold over hopefully, um, a new trilogy, but I'm not going to lie. I loved Sam. I, she is my MVP after Courtney Cox, who I think is utilized absolutely perfectly every single second. Um, but Melissa Barrera's performance and Sam as a character and this CGI crap, it is all super controversial. People are either loving her, her performance and Billy Loomis, or they're hating it. So I'm actually curious. It's interesting because when I saw the film and I said this in my review, I knew that this was going to be a very divisive uh, plot point because the thing that kind of lost me a little bit with it, and I'm still wrestling with it, I think there's further analysis to be had here, and I want to get other people's thoughts, is that this movie is flirting a lot with this idea of whether or not Sam has serial killer tendencies like her father, which... I, 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 okay, like, I get it. She's afraid that she'll one day maybe, like, turn into him or something like that. And you have her relationship with Jenna Ortega, which I think is actually very, really well done. And the two actresses, I think, act their asses off in their scenes together uh, to really sell that relationship. And I really love that that is the heart of the movie, is the bond that those two sisters uh, share with one another. But then at the end of the movie... Like, the movie plays with this idea that maybe she does have a little bit of her father in her, and I, I'm i still trying to wrestle with what that ultimately means. <laughs> I think that works better. I, I think it works fine as a plot device. Like, I, yeah. I didn't mind um, teasing this question mark of her past where she doesn't know if she has these uh, serial killer tendencies much Plus everybody around her going, well, she's the daughter of the killer. So I think that worked pretty well as a callback to the original films, more than the twins living in the house of Randy like that. That was the one that was just really convenient uh, more than anything else for me. Yeah, I didn't really buy that they were his nieces and nephew. If they wanted to just be like fans or something i probably would have bought that a little bit more yeah but at a certain point like and this is what i meant when i said like milking the cow it really felt like this franchise was starting to grasp at straws to try and find ways to connect uh generationally this new cast to the old cast and at a certain point my believability just started to kind of 
like I, I'm starting to lose patience totally. with it. And that's it's like the snake eating its own tail, kind of. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And that and that's why, like, I love the imagery of the whole climax and ending taking place in the same house. Like, yeah, that was that was great visually. Yeah. But but yeah, from a plot perspective, it was just kind of they they just really forced it in. It felt like. Well. Can I can I just say like in terms of the Billy Loomis and Sam like you know the the controversial thing that Matt was talking about uh, the way I read the ending like the arc of that is like like she's just becoming she's accepting that as a part of herself that she can't change the fact that Billy Loomis is her father and she's just choosing instead of you know seeing it as a bad thing she's just accepting a part of herself to move on and move forward I don't think that I mean it can obviously be interpreted as Ooh, this bitch is going to kill her sister in the next movie. But I, I, I don't think. I think it's a more optimistic view of um, like her accepting herself and finding some peace. But it's not even so much that that I have a problem with. It's more so the grisly way that she uh, kills Richie at the end of the movie, where I understand you want to have a hero moment. Yeah, fuck yeah, get that guy, and it's supposed to elicit that kind of reaction from the audience. But it did play with a certain part of it where it felt like it was going too far and i think that's intentionally intentionally so but like i said i was wondering at that point what was the grander context here supposed to mean and what is the ultimate thesis of what they're trying to say with the sam character because i then started to question whether or not if this was in and of itself a toxic decision there was something about the like kind of um like the incredible hulk nature of it like the whole like i'm always angry that's my secret kind of thing when she unleashes like that at the end but it felt like for the first maybe 10 minutes of this movie that they were trying to play with the idea of well what if sam is the killer and she has this you know serial killer genes inside her and she has taking antipsychotics and what if it's really like a split personality thing and right but it felt so half-hearted because they abandoned like pretty quickly the idea that she could be the killer if you go by just any kind of logic <laughs> so and like yeah. I, I wish they had played with that more because that is the kind of like elevated horror thing that you would sort of expect a scream movie in this day and age to play with. And the fact that they played with it so half-heartedly was a little bit of a bummer. I, I do think that the misdirection in this movie of trying to get, like trying to outsmart the audience as to who the killer is. There were times where I really fell for it. And then there were times where I felt like I had it, pinned down pretty well like i i genuinely love that david arquette dewey riley immediately calls out that the killer is jack quaid <laughs> that it's richie like straight away it's so good <laughs> yeah i had mixed feelings on that because the second jack quaid was cast is like oh he's the killer obvious just clearly and so i felt like they almost did like this kind of uh triple twist on us it's like we're gonna cast somebody who looks like he's gonna be the killer uh but then it's so obvious that we're gonna call it out and then it's so obvious that he was the killer that there's no way you would think he was the killer but he is the killer right it was like i i don't i don't know how i feel about it you know what gave it away from me i immediately during the movie not even the casting or anything like that because i i did feel that this movie could go in any number of directions 
uh, in terms of how they wanted to present the killer reveal. But what they did was they did harken back to the original film where it, it is the boyfriend. Yeah. Um, and I'll get into the motivations in a little bit here. Don't you worry. Uh, but the thing that gave it away from me was the hospital scene, which I think is one of the best scenes in the entire franchise. But in that scene, he gets nicked on the arm at one point by uh, the ghost face killer, who in that scene is Amber, who <laughs> is actually uh, in... Oh, my gosh. Played by uh, Mikey uh, Madison, who you all probably remember from Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> and I, I do feel like she's getting typecast a little bit here, but more on that in a little bit here. But when he gets nicked on the arm at the hospital and he milks it and is kind of like, oh, oh, my God. And he like the killer doesn't finish him off. I was like, why did the killer not take advantage of that to just kill him? And that's what I knew right then and there that he was in on it because it was just too convenient that he would get away like that, you know? So I called that pretty early, but Amber being the other killer, um, I, I didn't feel like that motivation was handled well. They just kind of presented her as like a kind of crazy girlfriend sort of thing. And I, I didn't really care for that. I liked that that was kind of a callback to Scream 2 or the original plan for Scream 2. <laughs> where the best friend was supposed to be the killer actually they they're not they're more than best friends it's very subtle but they are supposed to be a couple tara and amber that did not come across at all. yeah i didn't really get that i got the sense that they were best friends yeah, nope interesting the killers <laughs> um in this movie are um, uh, you know, one thing we loved about the original four films as Scream fans is the fact that we spend so much time with the killers. They're very intimate. Like there are scenes with Sydney in the finale. They're kind of longer. They're drawn out. And a strength of this movie is that it's very concisely written. It's very tightly directed. It, it moves at a rapid pace. That's a strength, but it's also kind of like a curse in a way because we don't get to spend the lengthy time that Wes Craven gave us of the first four movies. And I... I loved the finale and I loved what they did with it and how creative it was compared to other finales. But, you know, at the same time, I loved the finale because of the four heroes at the end, the four the four women heroes, not the the killers. And like I don't really feel like I get to know Richie and Amber as well as I did Billy and Stu, Mrs. Loomis, Roman, Jill. I mean, these are huge, huge personalities, and we don't get to know the killers as well. And I think that is going to be a weakness of this movie compared to the other movies. You know what I'm really glad about? I'm really glad that they didn't try to get too creative about who the killers were, aka make it one of the legacy characters, because that was genuinely a terrifying idea to me. I was really, really worried that that was going to be a, a thing in this particular film. Well, I think that they know better. Like I know clearly, I clearly. <laughs> I was, I was, I was genuinely terrified though. But that's where we were going. And so, if it, if they didn't do that, then the next thing that you can do is kill off one of your legacy characters to present uh, higher stakes. And when I saw how much they were focusing on Dewey and how much screen time he had, and Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox hadn't even really come into the plot yet, I pretty much knew that this was the end for David Arquette in this franchise. And I thought that the scene in the hospital, like I said before, I think it's one of the best in the whole franchise. 
I think that everything with Jenna Ortega in the wheelchair, everything with uh, Ghostface's standoff uh, with Dewey, Dewey's demise, everything about that I thought was really, really well done. I completely agree with you. Yeah, that is, to me, my favorite scene in the whole movie. Just the way that it's constructed and it really builds tension in a great way, which... I don't really think the screen films have actually ever really been that consistently scary. They've been fun and entertaining, but in actually like delivering tension and suspense, I don't know if they've ever really excelled at that in my opinion, but that was a scene that really, really was well done. And yeah, you get this really big moment for Dewey who maybe controversially, I kind of feel like Dewey probably should have been killed off a couple movies ago, but (laughs) maybe that's just me. But I think that he is given a really, earned send-off here, and David Arquette actually gives a really great performance, too, which is something else that I don't really feel like he has been consistent at in these movies, but (laughs) I think this is, like, by far the best performance he's given in the franchise. I agree. Surprisingly, he's my MVP of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, he's great. And, you know, I think one of the best acted scenes, like, Matt, you mentioned all the scenes with Jenna and Melissa, which are fantastic, but I actually think the scene with Courtney and David where they talk about their relationship right before he dies is such a brilliantly acted scene on on both of their parts. Like, I think, you know, Gail Weathers has been so different in so all four movies. Like, she has not, she's always been changing. And I think she's even, she continues kind of, it's very consistent in the way that it's inconsistent in a way. You know what I mean? She finds a, no, a new personality for her in this, which I think is great. Um, but Dewey really gets to shed tears. And that's something we haven't really seen from him um, before. He's always been so like strong. So um, that's that's my favorite scene. I, I'm not surprised that you would say that. But at the same time, <laughs> I don't disagree either. It's like these two characters having a Manchester by the sea type of <laughs> meeting where they're like struggling to put into words the past of their relationship and reconcile and... And it's really, really well done. I just wish that it wasn't so rushed. I wish we had a couple of scenes of interaction to maybe build up to it, which once again was another tilt uh, indicating that they were going to you know, get rid of Dewey at some point in this movie because he was having that closure then. I do wish that he also got a little bit of closure with Sydney And this is a bit controversial, like I was saying like earlier, and I understand too that some people definitely will disagree, but... I don't mind that Gail Weathers and Sidney Prescott were underused in this movie to an extent because they survive. Um, They have the opportunity to come back again in the future. I mean, look at Jamie Lee Curtis still kicking ass in the Halloween films. Like, who knows? They probably will come back again at some point. So you don't need them to dominate this movie. And I think it's very, very wise and smart that the filmmakers knew that they had to focus on this new cast more than the old cast. Well, Matt, can I just jump in real quick? Because I actually have their screen times for the for the new movie. Um, I'm a big screen time person. Nev has about 12 and a half minutes. David has 11 and a half. And Courtney has 10 and a half. So they're all pretty actually around the same. Really? I really thought, yeah, yeah I really thought Dewey had more. That's interesting. Maybe because in the third act, uh, Sydney and Gail have a lot of time. Yeah. And the, they're in the finale. And the thing about Sydney, though, like, it kind of bothers me about this. Like, I, I feel like Gail, when she's on screen, she really gets 
that arc of really dealing with Dewey's death, like the way she punches Amber and like she she gets she's the one who gets to kill her at the end or set her on fire. I, Sydney did not get a moment in the finale. And this is my only criticism of the film, like a uh, big criticism. Uh, you know, Sydney did not get to really kill any of the killers or have a big impact in killing them, which really doesn't sit well for me. And it, it almost feels anticlimactic. Like you bring Nev Campbell back, you let David have his moment, you have let Courtney have his moment, but I don't feel like Sydney really had her moment. But that's because, like I was saying before, like I'm kind of okay with it because the filmmakers are definitively telling the audience this is no longer Sydney's story. She's now a supporting player. Yeah. Which I'm okay with because we we do have to move on at a certain point. And I get that. Like like so there's gonna be growing pains with that transition. You know what I mean? I do think this is the last time we'll see Sydney and Gail. I think they were being I think they sent us a message with <laughs> that last scene where Sam literally says Sydney and Gail, thank you for all that you've done. I, I was watching it last night and my heart sunk. I was like, oh, wow, this is this is our goodbye. I don't know. I That kind of made me happy. Like, I just want to see my girl go off and have a life with Patrick Dempsey up mm-hmm. in the north or you know, <laughs> they are. I'm like, glad that they implied that those two are, were together and they had kids. That was nice. Yeah, yeah. I really like that little detail. And I don't know, like, I she... She doesn't have, like, the one singular hero moment, I guess, but they make a big point of saying, like, without her, none of these idiot teenagers would have survived. And I really like the function that she serves. You know, like, it is sort of that, you know, passing of the torch. It's, she is the mentor coming <laughs> here to say, like, you know, this is what you got to do to survive and you can't run away because this is your life now and it's gonna, it's gonna suck, but it you know, at some point, it'll suck less. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) I'm Allison Holland host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. I love how capable the uh, Sydney and Gail are in that finale. I oh, love yeah, so good. how they just take control of the situation because and they're kind of rolling their eyes at it all. Like, you know, because like we've been here before. We know what tricks they're going to try and pull. And once again, I really like how this movie treats its characters intelligence. I never once watching this got the sense that any of these characters were dumb with the exception of uh the scene where Cuba Gooding Jr.'s uh son 
goes to like meet his girlfriend <laughs> through the app like outside i was like how dumb are you sir come on <laughs> yeah that was the one really genuinely stupid thing <laughs> yeah also uh i definitely didn't realize that was cuba getting junior son so that makes a lot of sense <laughs> <laughs> but i mean everything in terms of like the standoff at the finale in the house the original house just seeing Gail and Sydney take control of the situation, have that self-awareness, that was providing the levity and the fun to to the finale that I needed from this, and I was having a good time with it. I was very fearful that after Dewey had died that one of them was next, and I think the movie does maybe go a little too overboard with uh, the... the the punctures to the belly uh, for them because one gets shot, one gets, two gets stabbed and at a certain point I like the image of all three of them holding their wounds in their bellies uh, as survivors at the very end of the movie, like that's a great image to have but at the same time I did get the sense that okay, is everyone just like superhuman uh, and then, you know, we have everyone at the ambulances getting checked on and i'm like you guys were stabbed where's your medical attention especially (laughs) tara well because isn't uh tara yeah like tara's being like carted away in the ambulance and the rest of them they've got stab wounds like why is nobody taking care of them carrying them off to the hospital i mean she she goes from being like unable to barely like wheel a wheelchair to being super duper high on drugs on the good pain meds to walking on crutches and being the one to like really start the last act of killing the killers it, it she gets put through the cr- ringer she gets put through yeah. the ringer she didn't even get her inhaler before that final act i know <laughs> yeah yeah that, that is strange and i think the other thing that sort of makes it stand out a little bit more that kind of ridiculousness ridiculousness of how kind of capable they are at the ending despite being stabbed is the killings that we do see, I would actually say, are much more kind of viscerally brutal than the Scream series has done before. And yes. like, people are, like, stabbed multiple times, which is not really something that we have seen in other films like this. They feel a lot more visceral and graphic in a way. And I think juxtaposing that to people get stabbed once in the stomach and they still have enough capability to, like, you know, beat down their killers is... <laughs> That juxtaposition, I felt, was a little incongruous in terms of tone that they were going for. Now, realistically, realistically, if you stab someone and you don't hit a vital organ, they can keep going. So maybe that's what they're trying to present here is that, like, yeah, they've been stabbed, but like they're they're not dying immediately. You know, they'll bleed out eventually over a couple of minutes or something. Uh, But yeah, I agree. Like, I was noticing how overboard some of the kills were going in this movie to illustrate that this isn't the final blow, if you will. But I got to admit, like Jenna Ortega, Tara, at a certain point, I was just like, girl, you're going to be like Dewey by the end of this movie. You're going to have nerve damage. You're going to have a limp (laughs) like you. You are done. (laughs) And that's that's the problem with the with the opening, in my opinion, because like, you know, they really wanted to. Like, you know, do the anti-Drew Barrymore where, you know, everybody thought Drew Barrymore would be the star and then she was killed. So they wanted to subvert that expectation of, ooh, we've never had an opening kill, opening person survive before, which is great and all. But I think that what you guys are alluding to is the problem, is the inherent problem with this, where how do you make a, a climactic opening where 
you do get to subvert that expectation. Um, and for a while, I was assuming that Tara would just be hospital bound for the rest of the movie. She wouldn't be in the finale. Um, I do think it, it flows a little better. And to be honest, I was expecting this from them just because this is the kind of like violence um, and like in terms of realism that was in Ready or Not. So uh, like there's a there's a moment in Ready or Not where um, Samira Weaving's hand goes over a nail as she's climbing out of a pit. Oh. And that's the. I feel like that's the kind of tone that mm-hmm. um, with the kills that is in here is in this scream movie. So um, I just think this is what this is going to be the tone for the new s- series going forward, and not necessarily reflective of the original four. Best kill in the movie by far, Wes. Ooh, yeah. Which for me, everything in that kitchen scene with the misdirection and waiting for oh, the inevitable yeah. jump scare, the tension with his mother Judy Hicks, who also gets killed. Uh, and then, of course, the stab uh, knife wound through, I think it's like, what, through his neck is out and out his cheek, right? Yeah, through yeah. his neck. Ooh. Phenomenal. Ooh. Excellent. You know, that scene Ooh. is almost like an op- like the opening, opening kill itself, you know, because like we have the fake out with Tara, we have like the mini kill with Vince, and then it, the, we had that huge set piece with Judy and Wes. There's so much going on there. He's in the shower, she's in the car, and there's that bait and switch where she's the one, you know, she's running up the house and we think she's going to storm in and then, you know, sneak around, but he just stabs her. And she's a survivor. She survived Scream 4. Like, and she's the sheriff of the town. Like, that is a huge blow for, and it's such a surprising thing. Like, I, not that I love Judy Hicks, I, I've always liked her as a character, but I was, I was really sad when she went just because of the shock of it all and how it was staged it's a it's a great sequence i actually think i actually like that a little bit more than the dewey sequence just because it's so creative and i think the whole movie is creative in that sense they did a really good job with putting things that look like ghost face in the background of shots wherever it was yes. blurry and so when the camera was moving i mean the camera in this uh, moves a lot they do a really great job with playing with audience expectations of when those jump scares will come and i really really love the playfulness of that and i just thought like that kitchen scene with wes was really well done to the point that um it was just such a standout and you know what Yes, I know it's a little tongue in cheek and they didn't really need to do it. But when they have like the toast of the party and they're saying for Wes, I I was like, okay, you know what? I'll give you that because the kill itself was really well done. <laughs> well, the I think that whole I think the for Wes thing and like the fact that they're having a party for him is almost like obviously allegorical of the whole movie. Like it's a we're celebrating yes. Wes, his, his career, but specifically the first four films. And maybe like something that hasn't been talked about on this podcast is the amount of Easter eggs that are in this movie. Like, you know, think Oh, that, so many, so many. And like, it, you know, you were talking about the slash, how Richie gets slashed in the arm. That's a callback to scream Two. you know, Judy Hicks in the car. That's a callback to scream three. Uh, there are so many things for, for the fans and for like, you know, people who love these movies. So Again, going back to my original thesis at the top of the podcast, I think this movie does a great job of trying to put all of those Easter eggs in there for the fans, but also, you know, being, uh, you know, amenable to the mainstream and introducing this in a requel sense and following the rules that will make it successful for a wider audience. And I think that's why the movie is so successful. Did you uh, catch the uh, reference that Kirby Reed is alive still from Scream 4? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What do you guys think of that? Well, the question is how many people here actually caught it. That's uh, that's Hayden Panettiere's uh, character. I did. Of course you did. (laughs) I actually did not catch that reference, but I wasn't. When did it come? 
It's on the laptop. Yeah, it's on Jack's Jack Way's laptop. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that's I know that's a small detail for like the, like this panel, but in the Scream universe, it just like because all people have, people love Hayden Panettiere in Scream Four. Um, so oh, this is the best character. Yeah, easily. People really wanted her to be in this movie. So again, I think they're opening up the universe to maybe bring her back in a Scream 6 or something just to, you know, because she is so beloved. Speaking of uh, Jack Quaid, uh, we got to talk about this plot point. What did you guys think of the ultimate motivation of the killers and why they did what they did here and kind of bringing it back to uh, today's hot button topic of online culture, uh, toxic fandom? I'm a bit mixed on it, actually, if I'm going to be honest. I I think that the inherent idea is fascinating, and I do think that that is very worthy of exploration. But I tie it back into something that Ryan said, which is these characters are played really well, but I do think we are sort of missing – a sense of spending enough time with them. And I think especially for Jack Quaid's character, he's set up as somebody who's inherently supposed to be an outsider so that by the time he becomes a really significant part of that finale, it does sort of feel like his motivation is just like thesis and not really tied back to like a character level. And I think that the previous movies have done a good job of doing both, but this one, just because of the nature of his character and how removed he is generally from everybody else, it does sort of feel like when we see the reveal, it's like kind of plainly presented and I don't really have quite as much connection to his personal stakes and it just feels more like a general idea that they're going for, not really on a character level. That makes total sense, and I get your stance on that completely. Yeah. I think for me, I'm just glad that the idea is being brought up itself because I do think it is ballsy to hold your franchise's fans accountable the way that this does. Um, Matrix Resurrections, in an odd way, also kind of called attention to this, but not so blatantly. And Ryan, like I don't see this as an indictment on like someone like yourself or... <laughs> Others I know who are obsessed with this franchise, but I do see it as, um, you know, obviously there's a reoccurring theme that we see with these beloved franchises and Star Wars, which gets a direct reference in this movie with Ryan Johnson here. uh, (laughs) They're basically telling fans like you really don't know what's the best here. You really don't know what's good for you. And Fans thinking that they know, like, because they're so attached to these characters or to the story of, like, what the franchise is all about, the feeling that they feel like they know best is something that I just love that the movie's kind of, like, calling out here as being hypocritical, ridiculous, and absolutely worthy of getting stabbed and shot multiple times. (laughs) Well, can I, so, if I could just answer that, like, I I didn't feel like the movie was calling me out. I mean, there was, like, one or two lines of of Jack Quaid. I was like, ooh, have I I said those words? Um, But uh, I I don't, because, like, on my show, I talk about toxic fandom. I call out, you know, the the toxic parts of the fandom. And, like, the Scream fandom actually isn't that bad compared to other fandoms no they're not um star wars <laughs> uh-huh. excuse me uh, which is no, something we like, need to talk about by the way <laughs> but i think that like it's more so calling out fandoms in general i don't think it's calling out like the scream fandom i think it's calling out fandoms in general which i think is yeah. smart exactly the motive itself was great and also the killer reveals both of them came at very early times in the 
the timeline of the finale. Like usually I can tell when the finale, when the killer reveal will happen just because I know these, the DNA of like the structure so well, but um, they both were kind of surprising. So I, I focused on like the motive itself and the, the timing of the reveal um, versus the actual characters. But like, again, the motive again is more of a, a mouthpiece than it is a character specific thing. Kind of like what Josh was saying. Okay. So on a, on a similar thread, there were references to, ryan johnson uh like they, they said I, I can't remember the exact quote but it was something like yeah it's way better than that last one directed by the guy from knives out yeah like insulting mm-hmm. ryan johnson it i i couldn't tell if it was trying to be like a jokey insult to him it, uh, i i really couldn't get a sense from my because by the time the reference passed i was like wait what did they just no, say? no 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 i think i think what they're doing there is they're talking about how Stab 8, which is supposedly directed by Ryan Johnson, they're, they're making a commentary on how Stab 8 is incredibly divisive and divided the fandom and so on and so forth. But I don't think it's being done as a way to make fun of Ryan Johnson. I think they're, A, calling out, obviously, the discourse that, you know, of course, The Last Jedi caused. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're, I really do think they're siding with the filmmaker because that's, it, that's clearly indicated by the fact that the fans are the killers at the end of this movie. Well, that's that's what I was torn on because yeah, the, the thesis at the end of the movie is the fans the fans are the villain. But I I couldn't get a read on it. it wasn't Jack Quaid who said that, right? So that's why. No, no it is. Oh, was it Jack? Oh, okay. Sorry, my memory is wrong. All right. Well, then. That, yeah, it's it's when it's when he's on the computer and he's watching yeah. the stab movies to try and he's watching them on Netflix to try right. and prepare himself, which I thought was also really funny. Um. And he makes like a, and he, yeah, he makes that reference to like how, oh, the, the franchise really goes off the rails after the fifth one and the eighth one is directed by the guy who did, yeah, Knives Out, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. That, that, for some reason in my head, I didn't think it was Jack Quaid who said that. So that actually does make a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that this whole thing about the, the toxic fandom, I like it in theory a lot more than I like it in practice. Mm-hmm. Mostly because it just felt like they just said the things that everyone kind of says about toxic fandom. But it's not just that, too. It's also the idea that fans are providing their own fan fiction rather than letting the creators create it themselves. I did love the line when I forget who it was, but she said something along the lines of like, are you telling me that I'm in a piece of fucking fan fiction? (laughs) (laughs) That was hilarious. I love that line. I think it was Melissa Barrera, whoever it was. It was a great line and they said it great. But like this idea that like the entire plot is constructed by the fans Mm -hmm. as a way to bring the legacy characters back as a way to tie it all back to Sidney Prescott and like so on and so forth. Like it's interesting to me because they are talking about like how this is ultimately what they want to see. And we, as I, I just found like the mirror being turned back onto myself and the audience in terms of, well, what did we want to see? Mm-hmm. What did we want out of a Scream movie? And it just got me thinking about like these existential questions in a way that I found to be fun to engage with. I understand that maybe there's not a deeper rabbit hole to go down with it and it is very cleanly presented, but I did the work. 
and I'm satisfied with that. Me too. Also, too, Jack, Jack Quaid really sells the reveal, I think, extremely well in his performance in the third act. Oh, I think both <laughs> of them do, both him and Mikey Madison. The only thing about Mikey Madison that really annoyed me was how much it was like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all over again. Like with the screaming, the kind of jittery, <laughs> like kind of, you know what I mean? Like, I just, uh, she, she's crazy. I, I don't know. I thought they were just okay, to be honest. Like, I, to be honest, I didn't, I wasn't blown away by Jack Quaid's um, performance in general. I liked it better the second time I saw it, but um, Mikey Madison, I think she's fine and fun, but she's no Emma Roberts. Oh, Emma Roberts was eating deliciously in Scream yeah, 4. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's she hard... had better material to work with. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree <laughs> with that. And I think, again, it kind of just goes back to their motivations feeling more like general thesis rather yeah. than tying it back into actual personal stakes. And I think that that is a deficiency, even though. I think that both of their performances are good. I am pulled in because of what the actors are doing. But from a writing perspective, it just feels like it's a two-part process that you need in the finale. And they really only delivered on one half of that, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a big thing of it for me. Like, I, again, like, I like what they have to say about, you know, toxic fandom and the idea that those people would be the killers in this movie. It makes sense in theory, but then when you put it in the actual movie the way that they do, it feels kind of like, well, this is what we want to say without anything to really support that mm. on a more character-based level. It was just kind of there and blatant. And I, given you know the really fantastic, like Ryan was talking about earlier, the really fantastic way that we get to know the killers in those final scenes, especially in, I think, Scream 1 and 2, but also in 3 and 4, they don't really get that. They're using these characters specifically as a mouthpiece to attack toxic fandom, which again, I agree with that fandom is toxic these days and the way Hollywood caters to them is a little scary. But there's not enough there it's they're just saying it there's not enough to connect me to these characters they feel like mouthpieces for the writers not characters in their own right does that I make sense i could see the the artificiality of it or like the the emotional hollowness of it being almost intentional given all the references to like elevated horror and like the preferences mm. of that versus like more superficial genres like the slasher genres you know that's the, the ongoing argument they have sort of in the movie but i agree with Dan, I do think, like, at the end of the day, it's not as emotionally satisfying. So, theoretically, it, I could talk myself into that, mm -hmm. but it's not super satisfying as, like, a viewing experience. All right, final thoughts on Scream 5. Um, I want to toss it over first to Daniel Howitt. Howitt, anything that we didn't mention or you want to reiterate? Uh, not much that we didn't talk about. Um, we definitely talked about the scene with Dewey. Um, I, I think... Uh, or the the hospital scene. Uh, I think uh, this this film has plenty of classic horror movie moments where you think, you know, why would the character do that very dumb thing? Um, and I think Dewey going back into the hallway was one of those moments for me where I was like, why why would you do that? Why? <laughs> no, I actually thought that was really smart because he knows you have to shoot them in the yeah, head. No, I they called it out and they tried to make it work, but it was so clear what was about to happen. That yeah, you would know it was so clear it was about to happen. But now, don't get me wrong. I think the surrounding sequence was really good. I think the whole hospital scene uh, was really well executed. That was just a nitpick. 
for like why would you go back in that hallway mm-hmm. but i also love the fact that he was killed i think that's a great moment in the franchise and i think it's something that the franchise really desperately needed to do if they're going to have this reboot slash legacy sequel uh i think they needed to kill off one of the original trio and and uh dewey made the most sense so i think that was really excellent um Overall, I think this movie had had a reverence for the original while, while not being afraid to update it. Um, and and like I said earlier, having the finale set in the same house, even though from a plot perspective, that was kind of nonsense. Uh, thematically, it was it was nice. I really liked the fact that they did that. So. Um, so, yeah, overall, I'm a fan. Um, I, I would say this movie isn't highly memorable, um, but it's a solid watch and feels like a much needed reboot, not just for the franchise, but but for like slasher films in general. Of course, all the conversation that they have around elevated horror and all that. I think it works really, really well um, to reboot slasher films for, for this new generation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. All right. I really wanted to see that house burn down at the end, by the way. I was a little disappointed th- that they didn't that been uh, nice. do that. But that might have been a little too on the nose, maybe. Uh, Danilo, final thoughts? Um, I think throughout the movie, there are certain lines of dialogue that sort of land with a thud. And that took me out of it on more than one occasion. I think, again, like structurally, I think there's some interesting things. I think... The story is solid, but some of those some of those lines of dialogue were a little rough for me. Also, I do want to point to the scene of Mindy watching the recreation of the Randy scene, watching yes Halloween in Stab. I don't even know how to describe that was it so fully. <laughs> that might be the single most meta moment in any horror movie ever, uh, and so I felt like that was worth pointing out. Shout out, by the way, for her being other than uh, Tara and. Uh, Sam, probably the best new character that was introduced. Yeah, I liked her. I liked I liked um, that scene in particular. I kind of that, that had a, that put a smile on my face. It's just the the setup of it. Um, I can't tell you my elation when I found out at the end of the movie that both of the Meeks Martin uh, twins survived. I was so happy. Heck yeah! Because I just want to see more of those two characters in the future movies. Other than that, I think we've hit about everything else in terms of complaints. Um, you know, highlights. Um, I think Arquette is my MVP for the legacy characters. And then as far as the new cast goes, I think uh, Ortega is the standout. I thought she was really good. She's a phenomenal actress. Yeah. So good. I cannot wait for you all to see uh, that movie, The Fallout. She is just incredible in that. All right. Josh Parham. Yeah, there are a few things I just want to mention here at the end. Uh, I actually do want to co-sign on uh the praise for yasmin savoy brown uh, i really liked her as a character and honestly sometimes felt like she was a better randy than jamie kennedy because jamie kennedy he's great in those movies but you know the character is intentionally off-putting at times and that does get a bit grating but i thought she was excellent i, I really did love her so i do want to mention her once again um something about the movie that did actually seem very strange to me is what Kyle Gallner was doing in this film who shows up for two minutes and then is rather unceremoniously killed. And there's not even a scene where we find out necessarily about his death. They just reference that, oh yeah, he got killed. And I was very confused about that. Cause like, wait, when did we find that out? It was, I don't really understand why that character was here. He's not in it very much, but it felt like a very big distraction that like, I don't understand why they included him at all. 
Ryan, do you have any insider knowledge as to whether or not if there's like deleted scenes of him or anything like that at all? There is some uh, there was obviously footage that was cut. So I know that there was more um, more information at the bar, but I think it was supposed to set up um, red herrings for um, Chad and for um, Liv because like, in leading us to believe that they, that they were the killer because of whatever drama was going on between Liv and Kyle. Kyle, Kyle so gotcha. Yeah, it just didn't really work for me. That that was one part of the story. It's like eh, didn't really seem much <laughs> had much use. Um, and then the last thing I just want to mention, which is probably my favorite like laugh moment in the movie, favorite humorous moment, was when Heather Matarazzo showed up. Which mm-hmm. I just love her just in general, and I miss her, and I love to see her in anything. But when she sees Dewey, and she just says, "Oh, you look," <laughs> and then just doesn't say anything, <laughs> like that delivery, I thought was amazing. It was the hardest I laughed in the whole movie, and I just went <laughs> I to that moment. <laughs> I loved seeing her so much. It's very oh, weird always. for me to see her now as an adult. Yes, but as a mom, I, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> Anything else? No, I mean, I think for the most part, I covered most of what I wanted to say. Like, this is a movie that is good. It's enjoyable. And I think it fits nicely into the overall tone of the franchise. I still think it has some of the same deficiencies. And by this one going so in on its meta commentary, I think it also loses some of the emotional impact with mostly with the side characters. But at the core it still is really well executed and it's not my favorite of this series so far, but I think that it has enough reference for what came before and has enough interesting ideas that it's playing with that. I was still engaged with it all the way through, even if it's not like something that really hits hard with me, like it may for other people. Okay. Dan bear, you know, it's a really fun movie to watch overall. And the cast is doing a great job all the way around um all of the setups for the kill scenes i think are pretty good there's a lack of the kind of cleverness i would say of a lot of the kills in the especially the original trilogy um but the brutality the shocking completely honest brutality of the kills kind of makes up for it a little and they do get kind of creative with the, especially in that scene with Wes, like the knife going just clean through his neck is that is an image that's going to stick with me for quite a while. I thought Marley Shelton was so great. I think she's just in general underrated as an actress. And I really loved her in this. I was really sad when she died. It, like that made me actually upset. <laughs> But yeah, I I think it's good. I think it's good. I think it falls short of the potential that this movie at this time made by these people had. But overall, I enjoyed it. It's a good movie. It's fun. All right. Ryan C. Showers, I know that we could be here for three hours listening to final thoughts from you. But I mean, what, what do you got? Final thoughts. The only thing I really want to point out, you know, we've gotten a, a great conversation here, and um, but my favorite moment in the film was um, in the finale, uh, whenever Gail and Cindy kind of 
find enough strength to fight back against Amber. And they, um, you know, Amber says, yeah, he went out like a pussy. And Gail punches her in the face. And Sydney and Gail each pick up, like, her arms and her legs and throw her over the counter. Like, that was <laughs> such, like, my sister and I saw, I saw it with my sister last night. And we were just in heaven because, like, you know, that's just, like, the Gail and Sydney moment we all deserved. Uh, and I loved her, I loved Amber's death of getting set on fire. I thought that was pretty pretty great. So those are my final thoughts. And if you um, want to hear any, a deeper, you know, review of uh, of Scream or any other Scream-related content, um, check out my podcast every Tuesday. So uh, The scene where, uh, you know, Amber comes out the front of the house and she's, like, pleading with Gail and Sydney for help and they just look at each other like, what do you think? <laughs> like, uh, I, don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> I just like once again, I love the self-awareness of those two characters, especially in that finale um, and how much they just take control over everything that's going on, uh, despite the threat that's being posed to them. Just a lot of fun to play with. And that's an example, I think, of good fan service where it doesn't feel pandering, but like it just makes sense from a sense of like, you know, to have them this many films in be helpless and screaming and you know pleading for mercy or whatever like like victimize if you will that would just not sell at all mm-hmm. so really really happy with how they treated the legacy characters in this movie all around um i love jack quaid being described the plot of stab and he just keeps saying sounds a lot like halloween <laughs> 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 referencing obviously you know scream redefining the slasher genre the slasher genre obviously uh you know being kicked up to high heaven by john carpenter's uh, uh halloween it just all kind of comes back around i really really like that a lot um we mentioned the brutality of the kills we mentioned the meta references character motivations new characters old characters i think we pretty much covered it i don't think i have anything else to say other than i'm definitely grading this on a curve i want to be upfront about that with everyone because deep down i think i really am a seven but i love this franchise i loved this my, my time with this movie i had so much fun with it i thought the kills were a blast it really delivered everything that i wanted from this particular film but i will say though I kind of hope that they don't do another one beyond this. And if they do, that's the one that needs to be radically different because trying to find ways to incorporate Sydney, Gale, Dewey, Woodsboro, the original movies still in this like new plot line 25 years later. And God knows when the next one is going to be. I just think that at a certain point, you're going to lose your audience with the believability of your plot and you need to just kind of start from scratch. And I do think that the way that the new characters are introduced here set up and given this context, I do think they have made a transitional film that will allow for them to do that. And with that, I'm very excited to see Radio Silence or whoever decides to pick up the reins and go on with a sequel to this as long as it doesn't try so blatantly to be uh, a callback to the original i understand the idea of a requel i know what they're trying to do here and i get it but i am also growing consistently concerned with our current media landscape relying so much on nostalgia and on the past and we see this right now in the horror uh genre a lot obviously halloween being the latest uh example of this 
it's good for a time, but at a certain point, you need to let go. I'm giving this an 8 out of 10 overall. Dan Bear, what about you? I am at a solid 7. All right. And I actually hope that they don't try to do a sequel to this. Okay. Danilo? I'm going to put it at a six, I think. I, it's what I have four at. I got enjoyment out of it, but I don't. I do think there are enough flaws to sort of hold it back from being uh, up there with the best sequels in the franchise. Daniel? Uh, yeah, I'm at a solid seven. I like this film quite a bit. Um, I think uh, it probably won't last uh, throughout the year. Like, I'm, It's not something that I'm going to really uh, keep at the forefront of my mind throughout the year, um, but it's very solid. So, yeah, seven. Josh? I am also at a seven, which is the grade that I have given almost every movie in this franchise, <laughs> except for the third one. That That's the only one that didn't quite make it there. But I like my feelings about it sort of remain consistent that I have a good time with it. It's enjoyable. I do think that it's very entertaining, but there is sort of like a ceiling that I have with these movies. And I think it does sort of go back to how meta and self-referential they are i think that can get a little tiring at a certain point and this one the fact that some of these side characters don't have that emotional through line does sort of make it not quite as good to me either but overall i still like had a good time with it i still found myself really being you know connecting with at least the themes that they were going for and i do think that these actors are really good so yeah seven out of ten i enjoyed the movie ryan c showers you know, I don't know how to objectively state this, and I don't want my credibility to be lost. Um, so I kind of want to abstain here. I'm good. I'm I, I it's part of the fam. I like it more than Scream Four, but it's not as good as the original trilogy. So it's okay. Listen, I get it. All of them are ten out of tens for you. How about this? W- say that again, if you don't mind reiterating. How would you rank the franchise? So uh, I go like three, and then one and two are equal, then five, and then four. Okay. Fair enough. Well, is that our first abstain from the rankings on NBP? Yeah. <laughs> well, l- let's be clear. He says he's abstaining, but we know what the real grade is. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, I, you know, and I will say in context to that, too, because we didn't really say this uh, before. I'll, I'll go back around again because there really is no Oscar potential to speak of. So we don't need to say that. I will instead say that this is actually my second favorite in the franchise uh, behind the first one. Great. Oh, granted, wow. it's way behind the first one for me. Uh, but I I really, really enjoyed the hell out of this more than I ever was expecting to. And I can't wait to rewatch it again. Uh, Daniela, where does it rank for you? I would say my top three would be in descending order, Scream 1, 2, and 3. And then I would say 4 or 5 are pretty interchangeable for me. Okay. Dan Bayer? Uh, 1 and 2 are like essentially tied for the best. And then I think... This one, then four, and then three, which I like the story of, but not the execution. And Josh, are you like, because you said they're all sevens, are you like just across the board or do you have like a ranking? <laughs> no, I, I do have a ranking. There are some variations in in them. I do agree with Dan, actually, that one and two are pretty close for me. I still think I would put the first one just slightly ahead, but I really like what they do with the second one in terms of continuing that story but also trying to do something slightly innovative with it and i really like that film a lot um right behind it those two i've actually put the fourth one and re-watching it again very recently i was really struck by how much i actually liked the commentary they were going for with that movie as well and i think after that i would say this current one and then scream three at 
the bottom, which has some interesting ideas, but that movie gets kind of goofy in some places that I don't really mm-hmm. like all that much. But like, like I said, they're not all like terrible, but they're not like that. Like, they're not masterpieces to me either. Like I enjoy them for the most part, but there are still like varying degrees of which I do enjoy them. Daniel Howitt. Yeah, with the distinct caveat that I, I probably only seen the sequels each once. Uh, the first Scream is is easily out in front, and then Scream Two. I would probably put uh, Scream Five at number three, and then um, four and three. I agree with everything that's been said about three. It's, it gets pretty goofy. This is like a lot of fun because when you start to have a lot of films in your franchise, uh, we see this like with you know something like the MCU, for example. Everyone's ranking is a little bit different. Uh, there is a clear consensus here that number one is the best amongst majority of people, but I do love that we're kind of all over the place here in our thoughts on the franchise as a whole, and I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, and I want to reiterate again, no Oscar potential. Sorry, Ryan. No. No. It's okay. <laughs> I'm good. Do they have, like, hor- like what are, the, what are like, the horror awards at the end of the year that they usually do? There's uh, the Saturn Awards. But yeah, Saturn you know, Awards, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm good. I'm really good. All right, well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on this particular podcast review. I really appreciated having you on. Uh, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find your new work on the internet. So uh, you can find me at at Scream with RCS on Twitter and Instagram. And um, you can find my show, Scream with Ryan C. Showers, everywhere um, podcasts are found. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, and if you're a fan of this franchise, I cannot recommend the deep dive of that show enough. I really can't. (laughs) (laughs) Danilo, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Danilo S. Castro. Daniel Howitt? You can find me on Twitter at HowittDK. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dancing Dan on Film. And Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Scream, Scream 5, Scream 2022, 20, whatever. The fifth film in the Scream franchise here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. And I highly urge you to go back and listen to our review of the original Scream after listening to this. Thank you so much for listening as always. And we shall see you all next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.